Amen. Well, if you open your Bibles to Judges chapter 7, we are going to get to work pretty quickly. Uh, for those who uh, don't know, my name is Sam, and there is a study guide that goes along with um, this series we've titled Unfaithful, and basically it's a verse-by-verse uh, walk through the book of Judges, and we will be, at the end of June, uh, we'll be at the end of Judges 9, and then in month of July, we'll go through the book of Ruth for four weeks, a chapter a week, and uh, you'll notice, if you ever read the book of Ruth, it, the first verse, the book of Ruth says, during the time of the Judges. So this is a snapshot of what's happening um, during Judges. It really shows God's uh, love and redemption in the mix of this Judges story, which is a pretty chaotic mess of, of things. So if you don't have that study guide, please grab it, and you can catch up with us if you're behind. Uh, but we go through uh, every verse, which today we're in Judges chapter 7. And I will read the entire chapter, and we will continue. And if you think, really, you really do every verse, go back and listen to Joshua, especially around the boundaries uh, sermons, and you'll find out that, yes, we read every verse, every genealogy, everything. Why? Because God put it here, and we believe it's important for us to read. So Judges chapter 7 is where we're at, and uh, we are, um, why am I in Joshua? We're in Judges chapter 7. Here we go, verse 1. This is the, about Gideon, and we're in Gideon for about three chapters here. So, verse 1, Then Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him, rose early, and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. And then 22,000 of the people returned and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, oh, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any one of whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, he shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. The number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was 300 men, but all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men who'd lapped, I will say, save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. And so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. And that same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, Go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterwards, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down to Pura, with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance." And when Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, 
the old I dreamed a dream. No, it's not how we talk, but I feel like you should shift it around. It gets confusing a little bit, right? Comrade. Uh, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell turn, and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. And so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came out, came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. And then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. And they held in their left hands the torches and their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, and they cried out and fled. And when, the three, when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshita toward Zerah, as far as the border of Abelmehola by Tabath. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from Manasseh, and they pursued after Midian. And Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Bethbara and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Bethbara and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. And all God's people said, this is God's word. A lot of word it is. Uh, so we have Gideon here, and last week we learned, uh, we've learned a lot about Gideon. Uh, but we read how Gideon last week tested God's faithfulness with this fleece thing. And now we're going to see in this chapter that Gideon, or God, really tests Gideon. He has declared at this point that Gideon, who if you remember, is basically a weakling, blue-collar, pretty small, insignificant, fearful guy, that he is the man for the job. And he proclaims, to Gideon that he is going to save Israel from this great Midianite mob, that he inspires him, if you will, by by telling him this and and forgiving him through a sacrifice that Gideon brought to him. He inspires him to tear down idols in his backyard, which is very unpopular. He helps him to raise an army. And then, we saw last week, twice he reassures him that he is going to do what he says by giving him divine, divine proof in kind of a strange way. He pretty much has said, look, you're going to do this crazy thing. I'm going to be with you. I will walk with you. You're going to do it 
I'm going to do it through you and through your strength, and everything's going to be okay. And so Gideon, filled with all the confidence in the world. Okay, that's what... God, you lay out a fleece, and he does two pretty miraculous things in front of you. I'd be pretty confident, too. So he rallies up the troops, and he leads 32,000 men to camp just south of the Midianite mob. And what we're going to see is that this is really just the first step in several steps of God building Gideon's faith. And what's faith? I think Hebrews chapter 11 gives a great definition of it. Um, the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of, conviction of things not seen. So Gideon doesn't know exactly what's going to happen. He's been told the what. But just as the fears of what God says he will do fall away, he has a whole pile of new fears about how he's going to fulfill his promise uh, come to the forefront. So if you read, spend any time in Scripture, you'll see God tells us a lot of what's. He'll tell you what's going to happen. He'll give promises. He'll give warnings. But he doesn't often give us many hows. How are you going to work this all out exactly? I need the details, God. I don't know about you. I'm not very good with surprises. I like to know. I, I will fast forward to the end of movies instead of going bed till they're done. I need to know how the story ends. I don't like not knowing. I'm not mysterious like that. Tell me what you're giving me for Christmas. I don't like surprises. Right? I just want to know. God doesn't work that way. He doesn't give us very many hows. And I actually think we wrongly believe if we got the how, we would like it. Like, how is this person going to come to faith? You really want me to tell you? Yeah. Well, you're going to get a terrible disease. What? And you're going to honor me faithfully as you endure that suffering, and they're going to come to faith as a result of watching you do that. Yeah, don't give me the hows anymore, right? I think if God gave us a lot of the hows, some of them will make us laugh, Some of them would terrify us. And all of them, I believe, would get us to a place where we're like, all right, I trust you. Because I can't think of any other way it's going to work out other than you doing it. So he doesn't often give us the hows. And because of that, I think because of the sin in us, we are often prone to trust ourselves in figuring out those hows. And sadly, it seems, and maybe... Uh, very, very um, surprisingly, when God begins to bless us for taking those little steps and following Him, where He gives us those moments of reassurance, those signs, if you will, it's going to be okay, it's at those moments, it seems, when we get like the big signs like Gideon got, you get the big crowds, there's people starting to follow Him, everyone's moving in a direction, it's at those moments where things get sometimes bad. When you start to love God actually a little less, and you start to love yourself a little bit more. See, men's hearts have the sinful tendency to find hope in and attribute all success to their own awesomeness. That's a, it's a sinful tendency that we have. And it could be their own wisdom, like I figured this out, their own strength, their own resources... God knows that men are incredibly unfaithful, and He knows that that same blessed reassurance that He gave Gideon and He often gives us, that same blessing that often takes away the fear and self-pity that we have, has the potential to lead us into and drive you toward pride and self-confidence. That's the tension. Like, oh, everything's terrible, I can't do anything. Uh," And like, no, everything's okay. You're right, I rock. 
right? We go back and forth where God's right here saying, no, you need me. And it's difficult for us, I think, sit in that tension. But if you get nothing else from the sermon, I want you to get this. The one true God never wants us so confident, so wise, so strong, so successful that we are no longer deeply desperate for Him. He doesn't want us so wise, so strong, so successful that we're no longer desperate for Him. And so to accomplish that kind of act, to make sure that we're desperate for Him, that we have trust Him, He will oftentimes fulfill His promises in ways that we don't expect and we don't like. And they're in ways that honestly remind us and are designed to remind us how weak we actually are. They are made that way to show us that you desperately need a Savior and I am it. That's what they're made for. He makes us weak. Now we don't like the sound of weakness. And one pastor wrote, I like how he described it. He says, weakness does not mean that you are a glob of spiritual jello that flops at God's feet. It doesn't mean you whine a lot or that you look pale or have the flu. You may not feel weak at all. It has little to do with what you feel. You do not feel weak. You are weak. That is, you are stripped of all human resources and are forced to lean upon God alone. That's what God wants for us. And so God launches this big mission for Gideon. All right, Gideon, here we go. I reassured you. He starts it off by making him smaller. Verse 2 is the key to this whole chapter. Could be the key to a large part of the book. He says to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest, unless, if I do, at this point, Israel will boast over me, saying, My own hand saved me. There lies the problem of all humankind. Men believing that they can save themselves. I just need to be a little bit stronger. A little bit wiser. Men cannot save themselves, and God will do whatever it takes to remind us of that, because if He does not, it is a grace and it's a loving thing, we are going away from Him. And He doesn't want that. So God is in the business, as difficult as it sounds, of destroying self-confidence. Or, better said maybe, confidence in the self. And that kind of statement rails against our culture, a culture that, quite frankly, I was part of the school system that taught, yo, ro, ro, self-esteem. Self-pride, if you look in the dictionary. Fierce independence, self-reliance. Now, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with that. Because the alternative in the mind of culture sometimes is self-hatred and shame. Like, you either have self-esteem or you just hate yourself. I don't want people to hate themselves. When you go towards self, you know, self-hatred and, and, and shame, and they go, well, you can't have self-esteem, then what happens then is people start to try to find approval in what others say or feel about them. That's not what I want. But the Bible says, and the biblical alternative 
to self-esteem or self-pride or confidence in the self is self-denial. It's where we find absolute zero confidence in the flesh and all of our strength in knowing God. Jeremiah chapter 9. Jeremiah is a great book. Depressing book, but great book. In Jeremiah chapter 9, he says it this way, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. But let him boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I've always been um, kind of frustrated with um, some of the kind of conservative political aspects of um, some characteristics of, of that. And what I mean is this. It's the mentality that's not necessarily conservative or, or liberal, but it's the mentality that says, um, you know what, you're in your situation because you put yourself there, and if you just work harder, you can get yourself out of it. Look at me, Right? Look at me. I worked hard. I did this, blah, blah, blah. And they, it's really a, an attitude of, of self-confidence. And so I would remind people of this who think that way, who actually are really just putting faith in themselves and not faith in God, who are just really excited about all the things they've accomplished, and they're just feeling super, uber, pro-self-esteem person. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 17 says this, Beware, lest you say in your heart, My power and my or the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you the power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers. So before we start going well, I just have a really good mind. I have really good work ethic. I have really good... Who gave you those hands? Who gave you that brain? Who gave you that personality? Who gave you those skills? God did. So even in your success... It's supposed to lead us back to a gratitude towards God. And when you begin to boast in God and not in your own strength, in your own wisdom, and all these things that you think are yours, you change your perspective completely. All of life becomes different. And boasting in Him means that we trust in what we know about Him, especially when things go away. And we trust in Him infinitely more because we know Him and what we know about Him than what we know about our circumstances. Because He ultimately wants Gideon to get to a place, and this is where He's going to take us, where you are going to trust Him with everything or nothing. With what you have or what you don't have. And to do that, here's the hard part. This is what the Bible's teaching us through Gideon here. In order to get you to a place where you will trust Him, you will be desperate for Him, you will recognize your weakness He will remove those things that are giving you more security than you're getting from Him. He will remove it. Relationships. If you are finding more value and joy and meaning and satisfaction, be careful because He will take that away. Money. Jobs. Even our health. Where we find Man, I'm just confident because of this I'm going to live forever. And then suddenly you're not. It's called pruning. And it's a part of faith. I think we do well, as I was reminded, 
uh, by Nate and John chapter 15, the verse that we all hate and love or skip over. John 15, Jesus speaking says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it may bear more fruit. There's only two options. And both involve cutting. You catch that? It's not like, well, He just leaves some branches to grow as whatever direction they want. No, He trims it, cuts it, makes it weaker. And the thing about pruning is that Pruning is supposed to happen, and because God's the perfect gardener, does happen when you are most beautiful, most assured, things are going well, most prosperous, most confident, most passionate, and then God's like, snip, cuts it back. And when He does, you are not like, zippity-doo-dah, I'm so glad I just got cut up. Right? It is painful to get pruned. You look ugly when you get pruned. It's shocking when you get pruned. But it is how we become more fruitful and more devoted by God's grace. And so God begins by pruning down Gideon's army. So before the battle, Gideon has 32,000 men. He is facing an army that's around 135,000 men. That's four to one odds. Not bad odds. If you think about it, one guy could take out four guys, and a lot of them have to do that, but they're pretty stout warriors. But slowly, God begins to peel away any kind of security that he's taking in his 32,000 man army as he whittles it down to 300. Now, Let's be honest, when, when things, like when we, we face a difficult task, like Gideon's going to face, our answer is never that we need less blank. Our answer to our problems, maybe I'm only speaking for myself, is typically I need more blank. My problems would be fixed if I had more blank, more time, more money, more friends, more stuff. More regard, more whatever. It's always more. It's never less. If I had less money, things would be so much better, right? If I had less people like me, things would just go so well, right? It's always more. And the funny thing is, God actually is willing to give us more if it leads us to faith, but His mores are a little bit different, like more suffering. Give me more, God. Okay. More poverty. More pain. More stress. More work. Because He ultimately is devoted to giving us more faith. And the funny thing is about human condition is that we don't really get a lot more faith in our prosperity. So I believe that some of the places where God builds the face most is, is like Gideon here where he is on mission doing something. He's actually moving as God starts pruning. And so the, I think this is so awesome. Okay, so the first pruning process, there's two. The first pruning process is very pragmatic. 
It makes sense to Gideon, I believe. He sends the cowards home. Sends the scared guys home. And this was actually allowable, if you read Deuteronomy chapter 20, this is allowable through the laws of warfare that God had written. It was part of the rules. And what happened in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 8, here's what it says, The officers shall speak further to the people and say, quote, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And there were other reasons that men did not have to fight. They just got married. Um, harvest was coming in. There's a bunch of reasons, and one was they're scared. If you are scared, then you can go home. Why? Because it didn't want the scaredy cats infecting the guys who were, you know, stout and strong. And so it makes sense. Get rid of the cowards, and you'll have a very strong army, right? Remove the weaker parts, and you'll be stronger. It makes sense a little bit. And this is the problem with it. A lot of times when God begins to make us weaker or prune us or take away, if it makes sense to us, we're okay. So what happens is we begin to rationalize and we begin to go, you know what, God? I understand why you're doing this. This makes sense. I know we're getting smaller, but you're actually making us stronger. And so instead of putting faith in God and actually trusting Him, you're trusting in your intellectual ability to comprehend what God is doing. You're actually still trusting yourself. And though it's subtle, your peace begins to come through the fact that you understand God, not necessarily because you have more faith in Him. Gideon does this, and his announcement goes out, and I think actually Gideon's like, all right, well, I mean, we just lost 63% of our fighting force. 22,000 guys leave. He's left with 10,000, so he goes from 4 to 1 odds to 13 to 1. But I'm convinced that Gideon's like, I will be okay. Because now I've got the studs. I've got the fighters. I don't have to waste you know, time with all the cowardly guys. But then the second pruning comes in. And it's a bit more terrifying for Gideon for the simple fact that it makes absolutely no sense. And for those who have been pruned, for those who have been made weaker by God, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Where you go, this does not make any sense in the world. God tests them. He takes them down to the water. And He has them basically drink water. He's like, Go ahead, just, just take a drink, guys. I'm not thirsty. No, you need to take a drink. Everyone just take a drink, okay? So 300 men lap like dogs. And God says, put them on one side. Doesn't say what for. Just put them on one side. I'm going to divide them up. And 9,700 guys kneel down. And you know what Gideon's thinking. Okay, 9,700, right? He's just whittling down a little bit more. 300's gone. He's like, all right, I want you to take the 300 dogs. He chooses 300 men. So you have uh, what the Midianites have been called the locust men right now. So you have the dog men versus the locust men. Okay, In this battle, it's going to happen. And here's the, the thing about it, is that many of the commentators, if you were to look throughout church history and, and even today, 
Many of the commentators make a real hard effort to try to understand what's happening at the water. It's really odd. And what I mean is they make the same exact mistake that Gideon made in the first time, I think. They try to comprehend what God's doing. And they have some pretty creative explanations as to why God picks these 300 and why he doesn't pick 9,700. And he goes, well, you know, the 300 were like the really quick slippers and they're really alert and so they're the actual real tough guys. The other guys were taking their time, kneeling down. I mean, it's like, really? And they get really creative in how they explain it. And it's something, quite frankly, that is not explainable. It's not. It makes absolutely no sense. And to attempt to explain is an attempt to comprehend the mystery of God in a way that He doesn't reveal here. He does not tell us in this text why he picks these guys. He did tell us in verse 2, he's making sure that Gideon and Israel will not boast, so they're going to make it really hard. God chooses and makes weak according to his purposes by his choice for reasons only known to him to build our faith. And we don't like mystery with God. We want to be able to comprehend God, and then I'll put my faith in him. And I know that Gideon doesn't understand because he's scared again. He's fearful again. He windowed it down from 32,000 to 300, taking the odds from 4 to 1 to 450 to 1. Okay, those are pretty... I don't care if you don't know gambling very well, if you're not a betting... That's a bad bet. 450 to 1 to odds is a bad bet for just about anything. So Gideon is in this position now where it is utterly impossible to figure out how this is going to work out. He's going to take 300 men against 135,000. One guy's got to kill 450 guys. It's a wipe out our entire church plus some by one guy. And you know Gideon's like, uh-oh. He is fearful. But he's still taking steps. He's still on mission. He's still in that place where he is going and serving and he's sacrificing and following in Christ into a place where he's stretching him. And why do I know he's faithful? He's not arguing. He hasn't questioned God once. But he's still fearful. I've wondered for a lot of us if we've ever lived in that place. Or maybe one of those last times that we knew God was telling us to do something that we were too weak to accomplish by ourselves. And if you've not had that experience, I'm not sure that's God's fault. Maybe you've insulated yourself so much to be safe where you never have to get to that place. Gideon is being silently stretched here, and God in all grace, I love this, He offers a sign to him. He offers a sign to reassure him. He comes to him, now remember, Gideon's the guy who's been asking for signs. And last week, you're like, you shouldn't ask for signs. It's evil, right? Well, just because God tells us not to ask for signs, which I believe he does, doesn't mean he never gives them. And that's a pretty awesome thing. There are probably people in here who have received signs. I'm not talking about crazy fleeces and stuff, but it has been clear God has done something, blew something open, made something happen. You didn't necessarily ask for it, but it was very clear God was directing. That is a grace. That's a reassuring grace. And this is what he does for Gideon. He tells him to go down to the camp. He says, rise, go down to the camp. 
I've given it into your hand. But if you're afraid, right? He obviously knows he is. If you're afraid, go down to the camp and your hands will be strengthened by what you hear. So Gideon's like, all right, I'll go. Right? It's not like he's like, no, Lord, I'm not afraid. Confirming that his shorts are officially filled and he goes down to the camp with his servant to be reassured that everything's going to be okay. And so he sneaks into this Midianite camp. So this is a big camp. And the first thing he sees is how big the camp is. It just emphasizes how small he is. He's like, there are camels and people like, like sands on the seashore. Which, if you ever counted that, it's a pretty futile adventure because there's a lot, right? A lot of people. He's like, oh my goodness. And the beautiful thing about saying that and reminding us how big it is because he just happens to go up to the edge of one particular couplet of comrades. Just happens to walk up to two guys having a conversation about a dream that this one pagan guy had, and another pagan guy is going to go ahead and interpret it for him. And so, he's sneaking up, he sits there, and, all right, I had this dream last night. What? Okay, he's listening. And a large barley loaf rolled into the camp and struck the tent. Now, the tent, it says the tent, talking about the commander tent. And it flattened down. Right? You know, Gideon at this point is going, they'd be like a guy listening like, so I had these monkeys, and they were flying down, and like, you know, it doesn't make sense. Like, whatever. And then, oh, I know what that means, comrade. What? Gideon. Now, Gideon, here's his own name. Like, what do they even know about Gideon? He's been a nobody. Gideon, he's going to kill us all. Wow! You talk about God speaking in crazy, amazing ways through crazy, unexpected places. And what you see is that whatever, whatever myriad of symbols, like this barley loaf, it's the most impoverished loaf, there is, whatever, okay? Whatever number of symbols and things you can get from this image, on a very simple level, you have an oven-baked piece of barley taking down an entire tent. You have something incredibly weak destroying something incredibly strong. The dream still doesn't reveal how it's all going to happen. But what is said, in other words, exactly what Gideon needed to hear, and when it is said, exactly when God said to listen, and who says it, exactly the opposite of the person who should ever say such things, finally brings Gideon to a place where he has genuine faith, where he truly believes. Gideon's, catch this, Gideon's lack of experience, right? He's just a farmer. The odds, the circumstances have not changed at all. But God has, without doubt, changed Gideon's heart by evidence of the fact that he, when he hears it, worships. He worships. And the strange thing about us is that we have such a screwed up view of worship. It's not like he's sitting there and the band comes out and they're able to sing songs. He worships in that moment praises God in that moment. And the beauty of it is that he is worshiping God before there is ever a victory. He is worshiping God in the midst of nothing having changed. In the midst of his weakness. He worships God in his weakness. 
Because he knows that is where God's strength is going to be fully displayed. We have such a problem doing that. We have to feel strong. Have the answers before, okay, now I'll worship you, God, because I see how it's going to work out. I feel victorious. And without doubt, we have victory in Christ. Without doubt, we can see ultimately. But I'm talking about in the moment, in the rawness of life, it's difficult for us to worship in our weakness. But Gideon does, and he returns to his camp, and he gets his men ready for battle. And the soldiers are like, all right, let's go. Grab your trumpets. Right? They put a trumpet. It's probably tied around their waist. It's hung down. They have a torch in the left hand and an empty jar. Not a single weapon. Let's go, guys. I don't know if Gideon was told to do that, if that was his idea, but he's kind of like Shamgar, where he uses what he has to do what he can, trusting God will save. And he tells his men to follow his lead, and he goes to the outskirts of the camp. And it reminds me of Jericho, very much is supposed to remind us of Jericho, where the biggest city, the most powerful city in Canaan at the time, Joshua walks up and they march around it and blow horns and shout. Prior to that, before they crossed the Red Sea, there's an amazing scene where um, the Israelites are sitting between the Red Sea and the Egyptian army are bearing down on them. Full chariots are coming to kill them. And they're very fearful. And they're like, you brought us out here to be killed. And they're scared because it looks like impossible odds. They, can't figure, they don't know the sea's going to divide. And here's what Moses says to them. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. There's your work. Just be quiet and watch. How awesome is that? And this is what Gideon's attitude is. He divides the men into three companies of 100, and somewhere between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., which you can imagine people are pretty, pretty sleepy, Gideon attacks. And they says they blew the trumpets, and they smashed the jars that were in their hands, and the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars, and they held in their left hands the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow, and they cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! And every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran, and they cried out and fled. And when they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all his men, enemies. So here's the scene. I don't know if it sounds like that, but that's the imperial butter horn. That's the only one I know, right? So right, he blows the horn. Sign of God's judgment reveals the light of their torches. They smash the jars. And they use the only sword they have, which is their mouth, the Word of God. And then in verse 21 says, they stood still. That's all they did. And what happens? Guys, they start killing each other. They kill each other. Thousands upon thousands are killing each other, and they're standing there with their torches and trumpets. Who is fighting the battle? Who is winning the battle? It seems pretty stinking clear. The victory is the Lord's. And 
The only thing that they're called out to do is mop up after what God has already done, using the swords probably of the people that killed themselves because they didn't have any swords with them. The Lord is the one who saves, and we are at best a cleanup crew chosen to enjoy the fruit of God's labor. That's what he does. And it's incredible. And you can imagine Gideon just going, I never would have predicted this. Right? I didn't see this coming. I thought the 300, we were just like really studly. And God was going to do like some hailstone thing like he did in Joshua. But no, he did this. And I didn't have to sing a, swing a single sword. So then Gideon, in verse last couple of verses, Gideon sends messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim saying, come down against the Midianites because they're all fleeing. Capture the waters against them as far as Bethbara and also the Jordan. And so all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Bethbar and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes, Midian, Midian, Oreb and Zeb, which mean wolf and raven, two animals that typically we just kill. Killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb. They killed at the winepress of Zeb. Pursued Midian. They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan. There's a tremendous amount of irony in this. And it would not have been lost on Jewish culture as they read. They would have been laughing at this. Why? Think about it. At the beginning, Israel was hiding from their enemies in rocky caves, and now they've been killed, or they've killed their enemy on a rock. You have Gideon, who was this cynical, weakling, hiding in a wine press so no one took his food, is now a victorious general who went and killed his enemy in a wine press. God is about the details. We are foolish and God is infinitely wise. We are weak and God is infinitely strong. And we can't do the impossible. And sometimes we struggle with the possible. But with God, all things, Scripture says, are possible. And though God gives, as Job says, God often takes away. And though we are blessed with skills and gifts and talents and resources, He will make us weak. He will make us less secure and even fearful because He never, ever, ever wants us so wise, so strong, so successful that we are no longer desperate for Him. That is His goal. And appreciating what God takes away is a very difficult thing for us to grasp appreciating that God makes us weak, believing that God actually does that, is hard. And it's certainly not our culture's recipe for finding true joy. But it is the very example we have in Jesus Christ. I'll quote a pastor, um, great pastor, Tim Keller, who is wicked smart and way smarter than me. He rightly said it this way, Jesus won our salvation through losing. He won our salvation through losing. He became powerful through weakness. He became wealthy through giving everything away. And those who desire and receive salvation are not the strong and accomplished, but those who admit they are weak and lost. Catch that? Those who admit they are weak and lost. And I think faith in Christ may not change your odds. It may not change your situation, whatever circumstance you're in. But without question, 
it will change and transform your perspective, your attitude, and even your actions within that circumstance. Our desire is to have more or less, whatever. And I think that when we get less and when we're made weak, we are like, where's God? And I will tell you that from what I see at Gideon and what I see in my own life, when I'm being pruned and things are being removed and I feel like, you know, I'm getting less of all these things I think I should have more of, that's actually an evidence not of God's absence but as of presence. We became or we become through faith people who worship in our weaknesses knowing that that is where God's strength is fully displayed. I'm going to close with a verse that you may have, may not heard, I'm not sure, written by Apostle Paul, who if you read uh, the chapter prior to, I'm going to read in chapter 12, just a couple verses in 2 Corinthians. If you read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, you will see the list of all the things that he suffered, which is infinitely more than we will probably ever suffer. Drownings, beatings, all kinds of persecutions. But then he had this one thing. He didn't pray against any of those things, it doesn't seem. But there's one thing that he calls a thorn that pounded on him. He had at one time received a revelation from God that was a revelation like no one had ever received. And there was a possibility that he would boast about that. And he believed that God gave him this thorn to protect him from boasting himself. Verse 7 of chapter 12 says, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. And I don't know what the thorn is. You can have seven different opinions from seven different guys. All I know is that thorns hurt, and he didn't want it there. He says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul's response, I will boast in my pain with my thorn, all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and calamities, which surmises life pretty well. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And if you think you are strong, you're more weak than you could possibly imagine. And that is why we come to the table every Sunday to remember how broken and weak we are, but that's only half of it. To declare how strong, how forgiving, how loving, how powerful Jesus is. So when you come to the table, you are confessing your weaknesses. You are confessing that I cannot 